Thank you. It's been good to be with you folks again, to renew some acquaintances and uh, to meet some new folks as well. Um, I've always, well, I wanted to say I've always enjoyed my time here, but that would be less than honest. Um, and I only say that because the first time I came here I was very sick, and I want to clarify that I was uh, taking certain treatments for a disease that I had, and they were very brutal, and uh, caused a medically induced anemia, and the reason why I was taking those treatments, it was a consequence of the life that I had lived before I came to Christ, and sharing needles around and that kind of a thing is not conducive to good health. Um, very grateful that back in the day when I was doing those sort of things that HIV wasn't around, but I did contract a, a very virulent form of hepatitis C, to which the doctors called me in to say, you have a potentially life-threatening disease that they call the silent killer because you've probably had it for a while. Well, I knew I'd had it for a while, but when I was diagnosed, I knew I'd had it for about 35 years, and I knew exactly where it came from, and it came from my past. So the Lord is very merciful. He doesn't always um, cause us to suffer consequences for everything we've done, but sometimes, as the book of Galatians will remind us in a verse that comes later, and I probably won't get to today, that whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. And so sometimes the things we sow, God is very merciful. We get saved, and we trust Christ, and our sins are forgiven. But sometimes there are still consequences from actions that we've taken in life. So I'm very thankful, though, that through those treatments, the Lord healed me, and uh, through the prayers of his people, and ultimately that's up to God, isn't it? You can take all the medicine in the world, and if God doesn't choose for you to be healed, it's just not going to happen. So it was uh, my first time here, I think. It was not so enjoyable from that aspect, and, and yet I'm, I'm thinking for sure by now that Brian and Aaron must have a much bigger place than I stayed in at the time if they're having the folks over there for an Easter egg hunt because uh, you could have found the eggs in about two minutes in the place where, <laughs> where they lived. You just walked to the fridge and that would have been the only place to put them, you know. So anyway, we had a great time. I, I remember a very fond memory of staying with them. They were fairly newly married, I guess, back then and no children at the time. And, you know, so it was uh, those early days and Anyway, it was a great time with those folks and others as well. So we are in the book of Galatians, and we're going to be turning today to chapter 3 and 4. As I said yesterday, if you're with us, we're backtracking a little bit. And I want to emphasize again that if you're here this morning, much, if not most, the majority of what I will be saying today, it really has application if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm giving teaching now that... Uh, is geared and designed towards those who have come to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, if you're here this morning and uh, that's not the case with you, you have never personally come to the Lord Jesus Christ and received Him as your Savior and believed on Him unto salvation, uh, then, uh, you know, if you don't get anything else out of the message... I want you to get that at the very outset, that your greatest need is not a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about today that have to do with growth as a believer, but your greatest need is that you come and see yourself as a sinner, as one that Christ died for. 
The Bible says this is a faithful saying, and it's worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, you see, a part of our problem can be when we think of the world, we think of that big you know, universe out there of folks and people or the world itself. But until you see that what it means is, until you see, you're able to say, in your words, not in mine, you come to the Lord and, say, and realize, I am the sinner that Christ died for. See, that's when the salvation becomes personal. When you call upon the name of the Lord, and like he did for me 40 years ago in that little jail cell where I was, and uh, again, I put a few more of my little testimony tracks out there on the, in the foyer. Uh, but 40 years ago, funny, most of some of you aren't even 40 years old, so it's not fair to ask you where you were 40 years ago. You weren't even a thought at the time. But um, for some of us who've been around, you know, if I ask you, where were you today 40 years ago? You're like, hmm, let me think. That's a tough one. I can tell you exactly where I was, sitting in that little jail cell in that little town awaiting trial and ultimate sentencing for my third felony conviction without the whole host of other things. But I'll tell you the difference was, by this time in March of 1978, I was saved. God had delivered me. I knew I was a changed person. And the change all didn't come immediately. Some did. But I knew that my life was never going to be the same. And it's a funny thing. A lot of folks couldn't understand it. When I was ultimately sentenced to prison that third time, uh, I got a much less sentence than I deserved, but uh, I entered the prison as a free man. Now, don't get me wrong, I wanted out. <laughs> you know, couldn't wait for the day of my release, you know, but and I wasn't wanting to stay there any longer than I had to. But for the first time in my life, inside of that prison, I was free. I knew I was free. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And when you know that your sin has been forgiven... It's a weight that is lifted off of you. It's just, you know, every, everything else, I mean, you know, all the rest is details, right? Sometimes very big details, but, you know, all the other stuff is minor in that sense, isn't it? I mean, that's the key, really. That's why the Lord Jesus said, and this is not the message today, but I feel uh, it important to stress it, why the Lord Jesus said, what shall it profit a person? I'll tell you, that's a verse that got to me. That's one of the verses that spoke to me when I was sitting in that jail cell. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You know, in my mind, I could see those old balance scales like they used to use. You know, here's everything the world had to offer. Here's all the wealth, all the fame, all the, everything, you know. You could gain all that, but on the other side, your soul. What would it profit you if you gained the whole world and yet you lost your soul? You know, that, was, that spoke to me in those days. And so it's so vitally important that I want to stress it here at the beginning before we actually get into this section of the book of Galatians. But um, that's between you and the Lord today, everyone in this room. God divides us up that very simple way. Those that are saved, those that are not, those that are lost. But today, you can have a second birthday. You can come to Christ and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's never turned anybody away. And He won't turn you away today. And oh, I tell you, we pray that it might be done. Now, 
when the meeting's over, there's plenty of folks here. If you have questions, spiritual nature, that you'd like to discuss, we try to take the Word of God. I'm not the Bible answer man. The Bible has the answers. Sometimes I can find them, but we can try to give you help from the Word of God to show you how you can be saved and know it. So back to Galatians and chapter 3, but we're going to be getting into, as I said, chapter 4. And we're going to look at the question today, how can I enjoy true freedom? And along with that, how can I live in such a way to please God? So you remember that we said the book of Galatians brings before us two very basic things uh, at, at a certain level. Number one, how can I be right in the sight of God? How can I know that I'm right in the sight of God? And the book of Galatians will tell us over and over again, it's not by religion, it's not by doing good works, it's not by rituals. It's by faith in Christ and faith alone. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Galatians 2 and verse 16. And so, very clearly. But then we find also that Paul would put before them the question, uh, having now um, began, begun in the Spirit, would you be made perfect by the works of the flesh or by your own self-efforts or by the law or any other means? And again, the answer is a resounding no. So let me read from Galatians chapter 3 towards the end of the chapter where, as we were reminded this morning, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. The schoolmaster was the law. What is God's method then? For you are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew, this is 3, 26, 27, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time has, was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Albeit when you were, knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn you again to the weak and the beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage. And listen how he describes what he calls the weak and the beggarly elements which were connected with the law and with religious ritual and ceremony and rites and, and those type of things. You observe days and months and times and years. You see, that's what he connected with the weak and the beggarly Elements, those elements that are powerless and uh, don't contain any wealth or any way to get you into the wealth. So let's begin to break this down a little bit. 
as we think of this section of the Word of God, and think now of what we find in this section moving us from chapter 3 down to chapter 4 and verse 7. Three things that we want to think about this morning. First of all, the terminus of the law, that is, the law had an ending point. Now, we, I won't backtrack much except to say we remember from verse 24 that the law was our schoolmaster and it brought us unto Christ and after faith has come, you notice again what I mentioned yesterday about words. Context determines words. Are you saying there's never faith before? Of course there was faith before. Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, and it was put down to his account for righteousness. But now he's using faith in opposition to law as a principle or as a, as a system, if you will. Now that this system of faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. Now that we have been brought to the place where our belief is in Christ and him alone, not the law, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. Who was the schoolmaster? The law. No longer under the law. That's the terminus, you see, that takes us on to that point. And connected with that as well, the concept of what we begin to move into, that we are sons of God by faith. And I said yesterday that we uh, have to remember that in biblical terminology, every believer in Christ, this is not a gender issue, we are all who are believers in Christ, considered as sons of God, and we're going to see the application of that as we move down into this chapter. Sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, he's going to bring before us the analogy that will illustrate to us what the privileges and responsibilities and benefits of being a son uh, include. Think for a moment about the terms. You see, in biblical terminology, and even in regular terminology in one sense, but more in biblical terminology, children has to do with birth. Sons, that has to do with status. How God now sees us. And adoption is a legal term. And we come across that, of course, in chapter 4, that we receive what's called the adoption of sons. Now, I want us to think for a moment in, in the language that we're using here in the Scripture of some of the differences and contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament way of governance. In the Old Testament, there were lists of rules, lists of commands. Remember that those commands were not suggestions. And I don't say that to be joking. The command came with a penalty. If you didn't do what it said... It was command plus penalty, you see. Now, when you come to the New Testament, it's not to say that the New Testament doesn't say there's certain things we should do or certain things we shouldn't do. There certainly are things that we find there in the letters written to the church. Don't do certain things and don't do that. But it's not so much about a list of rules and regulations, is it? You know, and we're very thankful for that. Because, you see, what happens is, if you have just a list of rules and regulations, just a list of do's and don'ts, it becomes sort of like a checklist. And people can just check off whether or not they're spiritual by whether or not they follow a certain set of external rules or not. Christianity is never reduced to just a checklist of duties. Remember Paul said, 
in the book of Colossians, um, it's not about touch not, taste not, handle not, all of those things, you see. All that was the law. The law was very specific, wasn't it? But it's not like that so much in the New Testament. Now, I confess to you, there are times when I wish in myself, Lord, why didn't you make it a little bit clearer here in the New Testament? Maybe if you just did an outline to say, you don't do this and you don't do that, it would really make it more helpful, wouldn't it? I mean, that's the way it was in the Old Testament. You had to use a certain kind of pot to cook in. You, had to, you, couldn't, you couldn't wear wool mixed with linen. You think, what's the matter? God got something against polyester? I mean, maybe I do, but, you know, <laughs> thankfully the leisure suits are a, a bygone day, you know. But, but anyway, um, you, know, you know, there were all these specific rules. Some of them made sense, you know, for a, for a community of people that were going through the heat of a desert and the conditions they had back then and lack of refrigeration. You know, don't eat pork was a pretty good idea. The, the uh, rampant trichinosis and different kind of diseases and parasites and all that made a lot of sense, didn't it? Some of the other things you read, you kind of scratch your head and think, what's the difference? i never forget going to Israel. It's, it's, a, it's funny in some ways, but you can see how things were in the times of the Lord, even today when you go to certain parts of Israel. I remember when we were in Jerusalem, um, everything was very much stricter there you know, than it was elsewhere. And we almost caused a minor riot one day when we went into a shop at a restaurant to, to eat. And we generally, we, most of the folks, you know, we wanted to get the local food. We wanted falafels. We wanted, you know, uh, shawarma or whatever they had, you know. And, and so one, one shop, we went in one restaurant. The man had a restaurant on this side of the road. And he had, uh, you know, the traditional Middle Eastern type things. And then on the other side of the road, he sold pizza. You know, when I say road, it's a lane about as wide as the space between the chairs. And one of our group goes over and gets a piece of pizza, walks back into the restaurant where we are with a pizza, and you would have thought, you know, uh, there was a, a riot was going to break out right then. Why? Well, he could, you can't mix milk and meat, you see. That's not kosher. Where do they get that from? There's a semi-obscure verse in the Old Testament that says you're not supposed to boil a baby goat in his mother's milk. And from that, they extrapolate all these things out that make things kosher or not, you know. You go to McDonald's over in Israel, and you can't get a cheeseburger. Can't mix milk and meat. The McFlurry stand is over in a separate place from the place where you get your hamburger. <laughs> I mean, you know, talk about straining at a gnat, swallowing a camel. I mean, that stuff comes alive. Now, never forget, we're up in the Galilee. Now, as you get further north and you get further away from Jerusalem, yeah, things, you know, kind of a little bit different approach to things. So, we're way up in the Galilee, and the Jewish guide says, hey, you're going to like this restaurant we're going to. I'm like, why? You'll see. So, we walk in this restaurant, right? And I look at the menu, and the first thing on the menu is spare ribs. I'm like, Paul, well, what's up with that? You know, and he just laughed. He says, well, you see... You know, the law says there's not to be any pork on the land of Israel. So they built this place up on pilings up off the ground, you see. <laughs> That's how they get around the deal to have these spare ribs, you know. I'm like, wow. <laughs> some, some things don't change, you know. Rules. Regulations. You know, when I, when I got saved, as I said, I was dumb as a brick when it came to spiritual things. Some people think I'm dumb as a brick and a lot of other things. But nevertheless, I, I didn't know a lot about spiritual things. And, you know, people 
They had rules. They had lists. You had the big five, you know, smoking, drinking, dancing, gambling, movies, you see. You know, that you didn't do that as a Christian, you see. And if you didn't do those things, that was the spiritual folks, you see. And then there was the the dirty dozen, you know, and, and the nasty nine and all these kind of things and even reduced, you know, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. Probably more applicable down in the south, you know, than maybe up here. But, you know, all these kind of different rules and regulations that they had of what was to be spiritual. And, you know, it's funny how those rules are, isn't it? I never forget the story of a man that I knew. Some of you probably knew his name was is David Gooding. And uh, he told the story when he was in London as a young man in England, actually, and he said, you know, in the, in the local church they were in, he says, back then, he says, all the godly women wore black stockings. That's just the what you were a godly woman, you wore black stockings, you know. One day, he says, there came into their meeting a woman, and scandal of scandals, she had flesh-colored stockings. Ooh, you know. Next thing you know, he says, I don't know how much time went by, but I noticed around one day, I looked, and all the women had flesh-colored stockings, you know. Because all the godly women wore flesh-colored stockings. And then one day, a young lady came into the meeting, and she had on black stockings. Oh, you know, because oh, the godly women didn't wear black stockings, you see. And while we laugh at it, I mean, it's, it's funny how those rules can become imposed upon people and become burdensome. And, but how does God deal with us now? The subject of sons, very important. You see, under the law, our status, according to Galatians 4, was as children. But under the New Testament and the New Covenant, our status now is sons. And the difference is this. Under the law, you see, we were in our childhood days. That's the illustration that's used. But under sonship, we moved to adulthood. Under the law, we were told what to do. Now... We have to decide what to do. There's quite a difference, isn't there? You see, under childhood, we were told what to do. Now, some of you are parents, and some of you have children. You know, when you have children, and you're raising your children, um, folks have different ways and approaches to getting their children, how would you say, incentivizing their children, you know, to do certain things. And so maybe when your children are young, oh man, I can remember when our kids were young, you know, you gave them an M&M or a penny or something like that. Oh, it was a big thing, right? Maybe you had a chart and you had, you know, certain things for if you make your bed and you do your chores and you, you know, all these things, right? And so when you're a child, your parents have to tell you, brush your teeth, take a bath, go to bed at a certain time. Change your underwear, you know, I mean, all those things. Now, if you're here and you're a child and you have parents, their hope is that by the time you're 35, okay, a little more, yes, okay, well, I, I wanted to be generous, you know, but by the time you reach that age of 30, 35, they no longer have to say to you, change your underwear, you know, take a bath, use deodorant, you know. Uh, they're hoping that by then, you see, it's not about a list of rules anymore. It's that now, as a, do I, I 
caution to use the word, as a mature young person, you see, that you now are able to make those kind of decisions on your own, you see. And you don't have to come to home and mommy has a list of rules on your door and puts little gold stars when you change your underwear or make your bed or whatever it is you do, you see. That's the difference, isn't it? And children who have to be told what to do and adult sons, gender neutral, male or female, who have to decide what to do. See, children uh, obey because they have to obey. But there comes a time when those children get older. Now they have to choose to obey. That's the difference, isn't it? When your children are young, it's not a question, isn't it, whether they, at least I hope it's not with you. I mean, I do see some folks that you wonder sometimes, but with most children, you, you hope that the parents don't just let them do whatever they want to do. That's not a good thing, is it? You know, when your child is young and your child runs out into the street where there's traffic, well, the father forbids the child to run out into the street where there's traffic, doesn't he? And if the child continues to run out into the street where there's traffic, there's consequences. At least there should be consequences. Why? Because it's dangerous for them to run out into the street and run into the traffic. But you see, once they become an adult, well, at least most of the time, you don't have to tell them, look, don't go run out in the street in the traffic. No, now they're old enough to know the principle of why they don't. They don't run out in the street in the traffic now because they know there's consequences if they do that particular thing. This is the way God treats us in the New Testament. When you come to the New Testament, God expects you to look into his word and extract the principles there from the word, the plain truths that are taught there on the surface, and the deeper things that have to be put together because he doesn't deal with us now as children telling us everything that we're to do about every detail of life. He treats us now as sons, mature sons. And now we obey, not because I have to obey. My father used to drive me nuts, you know, when I was a young person, particularly as I approached teenage years, because he had all these sayings that just drove me nuts. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do what I do. Do what I say, not what I do. <laughs> do what I say, not what I do. But you, I could never say that. You do, no, you do what I say. And then the one that used to really drive you nuts, because I said so. End of discussion. Okay, you know, that was it. But, uh, no but, because I said so. That's all it took, you see. But now you're an adult. Now you obey. Not because you have to obey, but now you choose to obey. Big difference, isn't there? And so, part of the difference between sons and sonship and children. Now, we didn't dwell much on this yesterday, on the subject of the pedagogue or the schoolmaster, but among the Greeks and Romans, that was the person who was in charge to educate them and to, to give their consent, uh, their constant attendance upon the boys till they came of age. Told them what to do, what to wear, um, everything that they were supposed to do. 
and uh, that was the schoolmaster, you see. In the Roman culture, um, it actually, uh, there was a transition that took place when you wore a certain kind of dress, not, not a dress dress, but I mean a certain type of clothing, a certain kind of a toga. Everybody looked at that toga that you wore, and then that's, he's a minor. He's in his minority. He's still a minor, you see. But one day, when you reached your majority, and you were no longer a minor, you changed your garment. And now everybody looked and said, that person's no longer a minor. They are now considered a son. And with that sonship comes the privileges. And with that sonship, he doesn't need the schoolmaster anymore. And with that sonship comes the responsibilities. You know, my son, when he was younger, one day I took him down to get his driver's license. And my, how things had changed. No parallel parking. No. No. Matter of fact, I said to the driving uh, instructor, um, aren't you going to take him out on the highway? Oh, no. He said, that'd be far too dangerous. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm thinking, where do you think he's going to be driving? I mean, I got my driver's license. I went downtown to the highway patrol office. They stuck a state trooper in the car next to me. We went on the bridge, the interstate, I mean, all over town. I mean, it was, you know, it was an ordeal. My son drives around the parking lot. Toughest thing he has to do is angle park and not hit a cone. <laughs> so he gets his license and we drive home and get out of the car and he goes, I'm like, what? Keys. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess you get the privilege now, don't you, of driving. You turn a car over to a teenage child, young man. Tremendous privilege to be able to drive, isn't it? Oh, to go here and hither and yon. And <clears throat> it's funny, you know, back then, um, you never run out of milk, you never run out of eggs, you never run out of anything because they want to run to the store and get you this and get that, just a chance to get out and drive, right? But oh, you know, what happens if that child takes that car, wrecks that car? Injures themselves. Injures someone else. It's sort of a risk, isn't it, in that sense? And so with turning over that privilege, you also turn over a tremendous amount of responsibility, don't you? Is it messy sometimes? Well, I guess it is. But what's the alternative? You continue to treat them like a child. They'll never develop. They'll never mature. They'll never learn what it's like to make decisions, you see. And so God deals with us differently. It's what the illusion is, not illusion I, but illusion A, when we read that, uh, but now you have been baptized into Christ. As many of you have been baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. You've had a change of garment that indicates a change of status, you see. When you were baptized into Christ, and that's a spiritual operation, not the physical one in water, but that represents the spiritual one. But the spiritual act that has taken place of being placed into Christ, a change of status has occurred. You've now put on Christ. 
Just like in the Roman day, they took off that one toga, put on the other toga, and everybody knew now that that's a son. And everybody knew now that he's got the responsibilities of a son. He's got all the privileges of a son as well. Let's uh, think now about the subject of adoption, which we find we receive the adoption of sons. Now, adoption is one of those things that can illustrate salvation in a number of ways. We generally think of adoption as a person who's not a biological child, who, and, and there's a wonderful illustration, isn't there, that can be used with children who are not your biological children. You can say to them, you know what, we chose you. You know, no, you're not our physical flesh, but we chose you to be our child. There's a wonderful illustration there. But really, when we come to Scripture, um, and, and it talks about the adoptions of sons, it's not so much that concept as it is the placing of sons as now no longer minors, but who have left their, 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 their minor age and are now fully mature, in that sense, legal sons in the description. I hope that makes sense. But um, it is important, isn't it? Now, what I'd like to do is think about the contrast between servants and sons as we find it here in the book of Galatians. And when we talk about that, I'm not uh, trying to say that being a servant in one sense is a bad thing. We find in many places the Scripture exhorts us that we are to be like servants, right? But here in the context of Galatians, it's a contrast between what it was to be a servant under the law and what it is to be now a son. And so here's just a few contrasts. The son is born into the family. The servant is not. The son possesses the father's nature. The servant does not. The son has a father. The servant has a master. The son obeys out of love. The servant obeys out of fear. The son is rich. He comes into the inheritance. The servant is poor. The son is disciplined under grace, while the servant is disciplined under the law. The son is an heir of the future inheritance. The servant has none. Why would anyone want to go back, you see? Why would anyone want to go back to what he calls the weak and the beggarly elements in verse 9? Those things that are powerless to redeem, those things that contain no wealth. You know, here's the problem with religion and music and liturgy and ritual and rites and ceremonies and all those things. They can make the flesh feel close to God, but they can never change you. They can make the flesh feel close to God, but they can never change you. They are powerless to redeem you, and they can't bring you into the inheritance that Christ has for you. That is by faith, by grace, through faith, alone, apart from all of those things. You see, our former status, as we find it here, we were under bondage. We were under the rudiments of the world. We were under the law with all its penalties. We were only servants. We weren't part of the inheritance. These rituals were powerless to affect any real change in our lives. But now the Scripture says, we are children of God by faith in Christ, heirs according to the promise. We've received the adoption of sons. 
We are sons and heirs of God. How is it that our lives are now controlled? There, there, these are some important concepts. There's a new freedom. What it is. We are governed by God as a father treats a mature son rather than as a father treats a little child. That's the freedom we have in Christ. What it isn't. It isn't a license to sin. Paul will go on to say in chapter 5 and, and verse 13, You have been called unto liberty, but don't use your liberty as just a launching pad for the flesh. You see, it's not just a license to do whatever you want in that sense. No, that's not what it is at all. Now, what it produces is intimacy. You see, chapter 4 says that God sent forth His Son, verse 4, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Pause there and think about the power of this for just a moment because it is, it's something to begin to think about. You notice in verse 6 that when it comes to salvation, the work of the triune Godhead is involved. Listen. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. It's the work of the triune Godhead. All three members of the Godhead there represented. Because you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What kind of intimacy? If you know a little bit about your Bible you'll know that there are three instances where this expression, Abba, Father, is used. It's used once in the book of Romans to communicate almost the same thing about sons of God in chapter 8. But it is used first by the Lord Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the scripture says that the Lord said, My soul is under exceeding agony. It was a time of stress, if you will, and distress, if you will, that so weighed upon the, the soul of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, that in that moment He cried out, Abba, Father! It's the cry of intimacy. It's the cry of a child to the Father. It's almost like your child, if they're hurt or they're in pain, and they come to you and say, Daddy! The amazing thing is this. You and I, if we have trusted Christ as Savior, the work that He's accomplished has brought us to the place that the very language the Son of God uses to express Himself in that time of need to the Father 
is the language that the Spirit of God places in our hearts. We use the same words and language as the Son of God to express ourselves now to say, Abba, Father. That's amazing, isn't it, what God has done through Christ to those that are saved. That you and I can come in that very relationship sense to not a God who's distant and removed and far off and far apart, but like the Son of God Himself did. We can come. The Spirit of God comes within us. and We express it in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We've been brought into that relationship. Religion can't do that. Rituals can't do that. Ceremonies can't do that. Even the law of Moses couldn't do that. That's what Christ has done. And it's the place He took to make it possible to go to the cross and die, to expose Himself in that sense to what He endured, not just in the garden, but what He looked forward to from the garden that He was about to partake of that death on the cross. That's what He would go through to provide you and me the ability to come in such close relationship that we express ourselves to the Father the same way the Son of God did. That death on the cross produced that intimacy. What a privilege it is. You know, we now bear His name. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. He owns us now. I mean, I don't mean to get trite, but if God had a wallet, he'd pull it out and say, see that? That boy there? He's mine. <laughs> yes, he's mine. I know he's a knothead, knucklehead and everything else, but I'm going to tell you what, my son died for him. <laughs> and he's my precious possession now. He bears my name. I don't want any other name but the name of the Lord Jesus. I don't want to be called anything else but his, by his name. He's the only one that died for me. His name is sufficient. I don't need another name. Name tag, brand A, brand X, brand Y. Whatever you want to say. Christ's name is sufficient. What a privilege it is to bear His name. What a responsibility to bear His name. As we move about in this world and we are identified by His name, what a responsibility it is. It's been said before, isn't it? You're the only Bible that some people will ever read. You're the only representation. That's how God has done it. Didn't send a host of angels down. <coughs> Didn't send a host of cherubim down. But you and me who are believers in Christ, who represent Him in this world. And that is a tremendous privilege, but it is a tremendous responsibility. It's not about rules and regulations. Let me give you one thing out of chapter 5 and then we'll close. Um, and you'll find it here because it's a powerful chapter to move into. We didn't have, I didn't take the time to go into it this time, but I want to give you just something that you find here in chapter 5. The key is so very easy to see. It begins uh, down in verse 16. Walk in the Spirit. Verse 18. If you be led of the Spirit. Verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit. Verse 25. Live in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. In verse 8 of chapter 6, sow to the Spirit. And in those spiritual verses, you'll find the essence of what it means to live this life. 
Christ, the power that enables us to be able to do it as well. As I said, it's not about rules. It's not about regulations in that sense. Stories told once of a man who married a woman, and you know, as they were married, sometimes, well, you know what's been said before, love is blind. Marriage is a real eye-opener. <laughs> and so they married, and the man, very shortly after the marriage, said, you know now, um, I have produced here a list of things that are required for you to do. Yes. At 7 o'clock you will rise, you will bring my coffee to the room. At 7.30 you will prepare me one egg, fried, over easy, cooked over easy. You know. And on and on and on the list went. And he was a tyrant. And she did her duty. One day, he died. <laughs> she said, as many women have said before, I will never marry again, you know, after that. And lo and behold, another man came along. And it was love. Whoa, love. <laughs> Marriage. <laughs> you know how many times I've done marriage ceremonies and people have come up to me and say, I'll give you a hundred bucks if during the ceremony you'll, you'll go, Marriage. <laughs> I just can't do it. Can't do it. You know. But anyway, she marries again. And this one's different. This man truly loved her, respected her, you know, and love. It was a wonderful, wonderful, different thing, you see. One day, she was up cleaning out her room. In a drawer, she found the list from the first husband. You know, she looked at the list and thought, you know what? I do this for this one. I do this for this one. Number 34, I do that for this one. <laughs> Not because he was holding a list over her. Not because there were consequences if she didn't obey. But she loved this man. She was doing many of those same things. But oh, it was a different motivation now, wasn't it? You see, so it is with us in the Christian life. You see, when we... When we love the Lord Jesus and we follow the truth of His Word, we find ourselves fulfilling those things Why fulfilling those very things that God required of us, you see. But all oh, the motivation is different, isn't it? <laughs> yes, different. It's because of love. And so, may the Lord help us to understand his method of governance, governance for us now in this age in which we live. And what the motivation is from our hearts. Let's look to him in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. who came into this world, born of a woman, to redeem those that were under the law. That we might receive the adoption of sons. No longer servants. No longer under the schoolmaster. No longer with a list with legal requirements and penalties for not obeying. And yet we do in that sense, Lord, as we do those things that you have given us to do, we do fulfill those very things that you would have us do. Oh, the motivation is different. 
Reminded of what John says as he writes in so simple words and yet so often very profound that we can't plumb the depths of them. We love Him because He first loved us. We do what we do now because of our love for the Lord Jesus. And yes, your word has many things that tell us we ought to do and ought not to do. And yet, oh, the motivation is different. Our status as sons is so far different from that of what it was to be a servant. And oh, the relationship you've brought us to now in Christ. And oh, how the world gets it wrong. They think Christianity is a bunch of do's and don'ts with a God who's a tyrant sitting on a throne, ready to swat you out into eternity if you make one misstep. What a perversion of the character of God. The Bible reveals that you are a God who loved us so much that while we were yet in our sin, Christ died for us. Not just to place us on some remote back 40 of the universe to never see your face again but to bring us into the very relationship as sons of God. Spirit of God coming within to attest to the fact that we are now the very sons of God. Sometimes expressed in the hymn, near, so very near, nearer to God I could not be. For in the person of His Son, I am as near as He. We thank You for what Christ has done. We couldn't do it on our own. And once again, we pray anybody listening in this room today or by any means of media where they might hear this message, if they're not saved, that today could be the day that they might come to the Lord Jesus Christ, believe on Him and receive Him as their Savior. We pray it would be done today. We give you thanks. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.